Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. In a prefatory note for her novel Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor muses on her protagonist, Hazel Motes, suggesting that the integrity of this tortured character, quote, lies in his trying with such vigor to get rid of the ragged figure who moves from tree to tree in the back of his mind. The ragged figure here is Jesus Christ, who also pops up in Weird Studies from time to time. But I wouldn't say that Jesus haunts our show the way he haunts Hazel Motes and his Holy Church of Christ Without Christ. No, for your hosts, the spooky and unassimilable figure who moves from tree to tree in the back of our minds is the great god Pan. For Hazel, Jesus is not the kindly, familiar, peace-and-love, hippie-in-a-nightgown kind of dude he is in the popular imagination— Jesus, for Hazel, is scary and dangerous, a crazy-eyed stranger in the bushes, enigmatic but inescapable, always dogging your heels. Everything Jesus is for Hazel is what Pan is for us, or at least me. That's a bad habit I've gotten into, saying we whenever I mean I, as if J.F. and I constitute a single being with two heads, like an Etten. All I'm saying is, Pan is always a stranger, and he's always a threat. He's not friendly, not familiar, not even knowable, really, and we don't understand his awful power. We don't know what he'll do. It could be the worst or best thing that ever happened to us, or the worst and best thing that ever happened to us. Penn has popped up in a few of our shows, for instance in the one on Hellier. He darts in and out, appearing as a statue in Susanna Clarke's novel Piranesi, as an offstage presence in M. John Harrison's The Course of the Heart, in the works of Arthur Machen, in the neo-pagan revival in British folk music, and elsewhere in the art we talk about on Weird Studies. He's not always in the picture, but he's always exerting some kind of influence. Lately, it's felt like he wants us to talk about him, odd as that may sound. Maybe we owe it to Pan that Jairus showed up. Jairus is the magician scholar who wrote North, an imaginative and venturesome study of how humanity came to understand itself as the inhabitant of an axial cosmos. If you wonder where I get my fabulous taste in weird books, well, in truth, it mostly comes from reading Jairus's book reviews on his wonderful site, Dreamflash. There, you can also find essays going back to 1991, essential reading for weirdosphere intellectuals today, and very influential on me back when I was starting to get into this field. In one of these essays, Sketches of the Goat God in Albion, Jairus recounts some eerie, synchronistic experiences with goats in the wild, and lately his thinking has returned to the sight of these encounters, and to the goat god who lurks in the background. It would seem that Pan is the ragged figure who moves from tree to tree in the back of Jairus's mind, too. In what follows, you will hear us trying to coax Pan out a little, trying to get a clearer view of him. 
I particularly enjoyed recording this episode, and I hope you enjoy it too. Did you know there's Weird Studies merch? And a Weird Studies Discord, and a Weird Studies subreddit, and a Weird Studies Patreon where you can listen to and read exclusive content for low, low prices? Well, if you don't know, now you know, assholes. Check out the links in the show notes. You'll know what to do. Okay, on with the show. I said it in email, but I have to personally thank you for being uh, such a intellectual solace during my sciatica summer last summer. I think that was when I kind of went back to the beginning and did the whole weird studies all the way through. And yeah, it was I, it's an interesting thing. I kind of found how there is some kind of analgesic effect of intellectual activity. And I got it from listening to Weird Studies in a way that I couldn't quite get it from uh, reading a book. Because, well, my mind was like deadened by painkillers and whatever. So yeah. having that kind of like human uh, thing going on, yeah, I guess it just takes your mind off it. So um, mm. many thanks for that. That was great. I'm, I'm glad that it was helpful. Having had sciatica, although I doubt very much on the level that you've had it, I know what an absolute torture that is. It was it was insane. And pain turns you into a different person. Like chronic pain changes you, you know? You realize like you're attached to a certain sense of who you are based on things you do, and suddenly there's a bunch of stuff you can't do. So now what? My experience, anyway. I felt kind of lucky. I've got a really good friend who's she suffers from Crohn's disease and has oh, experienced God. like real severe pain on a regular basis. And I think at my worst point, when even with all the medication I had, it was just unspeakably excruciating. And I was on the phone to her, and she just like to be in that state and have a friend who genuinely knows what it's like was a bit of a blessing. Did it go away or is it better now? It's, br it's pretty much better now. It's been a, a slow recovery. Uh, I think it was a good like four months before I was like walking to the shops to do my shopping. But that was kind of, uh, I was still hobbling. It was early this year when I was, I felt roughly back to normal. And it was actually like a couple of weeks ago, I went for my first run. Oh, good. So yeah, get in there. Yeah, that, that's got to have felt good. There's a sweet spot with pain where, uh, well, pain is never good, but with illness in general, there's, there is a kind of place where you're just ill enough so people leave you alone and not so ill that you can't produce and create. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Deleuze talked about that, the virtues of illness, just to, to find that place. But of course, you know, because we live in a world of becoming, uh, small illnesses tend to become more serious as time goes by and then that weird balance between uh you know that salvific illness that allows you to just be left alone which is my goal in life um, and, then, <laughs> and then the aloneness of the grave or whatever yeah yeah so i don't know if you experience at any point in your convalescence 
Uh, another one is uh, John Copropoas writes beautifully about convalescence and the kind of magical, animistic wonderment that accompanies it, mm-hmm. like the way that the world looks alive when you're convalescing. Did you experience moments in your illness where you found affordances in it that made it good, uh, positive? I ta- That's tricky. I um, At first I thought, oh, hey, I'll get loads of time to read, but I could not focus on reading. So that was... That was kind of distressing. So um, pain is hard. I, I, you know, while you guys were talking in the beginning, I was looking up the etymology of the word pain, which I, I know it comes from the French pen. But I was trying to find a link back to panic because that would have enabled a, yeah. a, a connection to our, our theme. Because, you know, we, we talked about different things that we could discuss and eventually we settled on pan, a god that has come up in a few occasions on the show. And I know it's something you're working on right now. So... I just thought that'd provide a nice segue, but I can't find the etymological link I need. I'd have to pull a Heidegger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, the etymology of Pan is kind of mysterious, and I'm not sure I would... But at the same time, I would maybe connect... I have personal connections between Pan and pain and that kind of side of life that you wouldn't necessarily associate with the kind of Jolly Piper. Hmm. Uh, figure, but yeah, I'm not sure the link is there in the yeah. in the word. Well, something something that this evokes in my mind is thinking about Pan as a a god of uh, blesses with one hand and curses with the other. I guess that's a kind of duality. Mm-hmm. The ambivalent bounty of Pan could be something like the ambivalent bounty of pain. It's mm-hmm. interesting, JF, that you say that you're sweet spot is like sick enough to be out the game, but not so sick that you're not able to go in, into your own world of you know reading and thinking mm-hmm. and writing and, and creating. I don't experience that at all. I, it's funny, maybe you and I, the difference, temperamental difference between you and me might come into focus in our respective relationship to that exact aspect of pain. Because for me, pain or some kind of serious, debilitating illness or chronic condition is something that just shuts me the fuck down. Like, <laughs> but sort of more like what Jairus was describing before. It's more binary. Either I'm doing fine, in which case I'm trying to do everything all the time, or I'm shut down. And I often feel like those times that I'm shut down... I don't have the opportunity to be productive and creative and all the rest of it. But that itself is a kind of bounty or boon Mm. because sometimes I almost get the feeling that it's like your body is like, okay, we tried doing this the easy way and you wouldn't listen. So now we got to do it the hard way. I'm going to make you stop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, um, Connection to Pan is just sort of like, you know, Pan is one of those gods that can make you or destroy you, or at least so it seems from my uh, relatively superficial reading. An encounter with Pan can be the worst thing that ever happened to you, but also in a certain way, the exact thing that you needed. Hillman, I don't know if you've read James Hillman's uh, essay on Pan. Reading that was very interesting to me that uh, I'd had these kind of experiences, dreams and whatever that I connected to Pan, but they seem to be related to healing of some kind. And this wasn't something my cursory 
idea of Pan embraced, but reading Hillman and, and following him into the uh, original Greek, he was very much associated with healing dreams. I think there was some associations Asclepius, with um, yeah. Asclepius. And it's very much that, uh, what's the word? Uh, pharmacon, mm. I think. Does um, Derrida talks about the this word that means uh, both a poison and a cure. And all of this, I, th I think, goes right to the heart of what I think is so interesting about Pan as a kind of um, ambassador of the pre-modern world where ambivalence and that idea of dualities being bound up together is very prominent. There's a book called In Search of the Primitive by Stanley Diamond. It's like a mid-70s bit of anthropology. I get a feeling reading it, it was probably like a big book for Hacking Bay. And it's, I, you know, it shows that it's dated, but it's, it's very, very interesting. He's got a big thing about the trickster. He's taking the trickster figure as emblematic of, of what he calls the primitive. And uh, I was just reading a section, he's talking about the book of Job in relation to this idea. And the book of Job is starting to break away from the primitive idea of the trickster because it's struggling, starting to struggle with this idea that evil is in the world, uh, but God mm -hmm. is good. So what's going on there? Which just isn't a, as much of an issue for cultures where their image of divinity is mixed. Yeah. And this is entirely Pan's significance in Greek mythology, I think, because he's the only Greek god who's part animal, part human. He's got this kind of mixed aspect to him yeah. right there. Um, a, a, a figure of the in-between. And the, the dichotomy is right at the heart of it. I mean, one of the big takeaways from Hillman is that Pan is fear and desire, right? These two kind of primal impulses, primal instincts. Pan is instinct, both in terms of the blind reflexive sense of instinct, but also the archetypal imagistic sense of instinct, right? So Pan is the figure of, I guess you could frame it this way, you could say that Pan is the god that symbolizes or can symbolize the process by which opposites are united and separated, the kind of in-between of, of the opposite. So from a Jungian perspective, because Jung was really big on trying to bring back this idea of really reconnecting with a kind of more, I guess, pre-modern, certainly pre-modern idea of the opposites being uh, interdependent, caught in a permanent tension. You know, his answer to Job is basically that we need to recognize that God has another half, a dark half. And so there's a, a call back to that. And Pan can be seen as a, as a figure of that, but also as a figure of not just the wonder and romance of a pre-modern kind of pastoral world, but also the strange horror of a world that is fundamentally ambivalent. You know, Pan and Panic. I mean, even in the Greek polis, to see Pan was to experience panic. And so um, even to the Greeks who had kind of, of course, erected that vertical axis that you talk about in, in North, uh, they had done that. And yet they were still in a sense in a kind of in their fractal um, country, always in proximity to ocean and wilderness. There was, it was really hard for them to forget that connection. And so Pan becomes the figure of the in-between. The goat becomes the figure of the in-between. Um, nature in here and nature out there, as Pillman says. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, I, this is getting into the the research. It's kind of ongoing for me, but it's that's come up recently, uh, which is looking at Pan's how he figures in ancient Greece itself. And of course, we're talking about like the earliest kind of time when we've got records, which is you know sixth, fifth century, I guess. And Pan is he's famously from Arcadia, which is like the landlocked bit in the middle of the Peloponnese, and. There's a famous story of how he came to be worshipped in Athens, which is the, I think it's around the Battle of Marathon. And yeah, the, right, right on the eve of the battle. Yeah. So the, a runner is sent to the Spartans to ask if they can help. And I don't think the Spartans can make it. I think they're like, hey, we've got like a, a lunar ritual on. We can't help you. So, so the runner runs back. like, And I think he meets Pan. He says he meets Pan on the way back. And Pan's like... I think he just says, like, you know, hey, what, what is it with you Athenians? I'm nice to you, but you're not honouring me. You're not worshipping me. And so he, the runner passes this message back to the Athenians, who I think in the wake of the victory of the Battle of Marathon, they set up a, an altar to him in the Acropolis. And I think it's in, there's a kind of a cave under the Acropolis that is the kind of grotto of Pan or whatever. Mm. And I'm fascinated by this relationship between Athens and Arcadia, because we kind of look back to ancient Greece and Pan as, uh, you know, we're, in a way we're, lo we're looking back from modern civilization to this kind of like pre-modern world. But obviously Greece is also part of the origins of the modern world. And that dynamic is there within ancient Greece itself between Athens, civilized life and Arcadia, the kind of rawer, more rustic, primitive life. And I think Philippe Bourgeau, who wrote The Cult of Pan in Ancient Greece, which I think is like, as far as I can see, it's like the one of the few main, you know, in-depth studies of Pan, mythologically. He's got the idea, I think, that to the Athenians, the grotto in the Acropolis represented Arcadia. So Pan was in the grotto as he was in Arcadia. It was kind of like a microcosm. So the civilized Athenians set up this altar to worship him. But what was, how did they relate to Arcadia? I've gathered that, I think it was only when we come to the Roman period, I think maybe Virgil, where what we take as our standard image of Arcadia, the kind of really lush, bucolic, Eden, almost paradisical, rural scene. That wasn't how Arcadia was, obviously, I guess, but, th but that wasn't even how the Athenians saw it because to them, the Arcadians were, I guess there was a bit of ambivalence in the sense of like, you know, they would be looking down on, but also kind of elevating a bit. Um, but they Yeah, a bit like the Romans looked at the Celts sort of thing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There's that dynamic almost always when you get a kind of advanced primitive relationship. There's a, a yin-yang inner aspect to it where it's some level the side who is kind of like looked down on are actually looked up to in a certain way by the other side. There's this weird dynamic. One of the nicknames for the Arcadians translates as acorn eaters. <laughs> the idea was people who ate acorns, basically you're just kind of like, you're a forager. You're just picking wild nuts and berries and whatever. And that is an indication of being, you've not got agriculture yet. You're a bit stupid. You're a bit, you know, rudimentary. Um, right. And connected to this, I guess, is Pan being a, a herder. He's the god of the herd. He's also the god of the hunt, but not the 
I think Artemis is more the kind of god of the the hunters, a kind of pastime or noble sports, whereas Pan is the god of the hunters going for food. In the animal sense, right? Exactly, yeah. Of the, yeah, or, of predation. Uh, or maybe? I no? think I took it as like the hunt, uh, the human hunt of animals. Hmm. There's the dynamic as well with him as the herder because he's half goat, he's half human. So he's kind of representative of the animals that are being herded that are semi-domesticated but still a bit wild. Um, right. But he's also the herder. He looks after the flocks. Mm-hmm. So herding pastoralism is a, it's not fully uh, like a hunter-gatherer way of life. There's an element of domestication in there, but at the same time, it's not fully, you know, they're not corralling animals. It's not really kind of agriculture in that sense. And that connected with the foraging of the acorns and the sustenance hunt. You know, there's this picture of Arcadians as they've still got a foothold in the world well before agriculture. I'm very interested in that as like Pan has become more and more as I've researched his story, he's more and more become this kind of emblem of a kind of transition between ways of life. That's super interesting. Um, and how how that was all mediated within ancient Greece through the Athenian looking down on the Arcadians, but then setting up an altar to Pan right in the heart of Athens. This is fascinating to me how you've set this up and already I feel like completely like rotated my view of, of Pan, what Pan is. Because I got to say in preparing for the show, I was like, I'm not vibing with Pan. I don't get Pan. Did Pan come over to like North America? I don't know. Maybe this is just a European thing. And maybe we can think a bit about this. But maybe one reason why I'm bringing that up is because of I don't know if you watched the show um, Hallier. I did, yeah. I did a show on it. Spoiler alert, um, at the end, they do an invocation of Pan in a Kentucky cave. And uh, I remember wondering if Pan was around, if Pan would even answer. But that's actually not where I was going. 
where you ended up talking about the relationship between Arcadia and the grotto, between Arcadia and Athens, Pan and Athens, that being a very productive site of further investigation into who Pan is or what Pan is. One thing that this conjures in my mind, probably because I was listening to English psychedelic rock last night, is counterculture. The idea of counterculture. You were saying that there does seem to be this persistent cultural reflex of a uh, civilization primitivism pairing, a yin-yang sort of pairing that plays itself out, you know, in multiple historical situations, different places in the world and different times. You know, what you're describing, the idea that there are primitives, quote unquote, who despite their primitiveness, have something that the civilized culture lacks and that the civilized culture is put in a position of figuring out how to interface with this thing, how to get down with this thing, how to relate to it. Because, you know, how do you just step out of civilization? Uh, we recently did a show on mid-century pop exotica and some of its implications. And there's a line from... Well, Gary Snyder, by way of Nanao Sakaki, we are primitives of an unknown culture, which you saw sometimes printed in the underground newspapers, the underground press of the 1960s, which at one point in my scholarly life, I did a good deal of research into that and just generally being super interested in counterculture and the idea of counterculture, the various paradoxes and antimonies of counterculture. But this is one of them. You know, when you say we are primitives of an unknown culture, it's like you advance the idea of the so-called primitive culture in advance of actually having one or knowing what it is or having an actual spatio-temporal set of coordinates in the world that you can attach yourself to. And there's something in that reflex of identifying as the primitive of an unknown culture that seems to be at least partly at play here. And this is interesting because I always thought like for, you know, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, the Pink Floyd album, it takes its name from Wind in the Willows, a chapter in Wind in the Willows and Wind in the Willows itself being a kind of artifact of that fantasiacla English cult of Pan, the fascination for Pan. And as a historicist, uh, a fully paid up member of academia, I'm like, well, that's the deal with like English counterculture in the 60s and Pan, it's drawing off a Victorian and Edwardian culture and that's the story. But you know, you're suggesting something with deeper historical roots or perhaps something even unhistorical, perhaps untimely. Something psychological. Yes, exactly. I was just looking, re-looking at a book I don't know if you've come across called The Juniper Fuse by Clayton Eshelman. No. He's an interesting guy. He's a bit of a beat poet. I think he's maybe a, a notch below Gary Snyder's generation, but kind of like associated with Gary Snyder. And he wrote this book about the Paleolithic caves in France, the painted caves at Lascaux and Peshmel. And he kind of went over there and lived there. And uh, I think during the 80s, spent a long time around there. I think he was going through like Reichian therapy at the time. And this was a time when the guardians of the cave, the people who looked after them, would let a guy like him in to spend time in there in the actual 
you know, because I, Lascaux was closed down and a replica was constructed, so people couldn't actually go in the original thing. So he did this, what he calls a saturation job on the painted caves, just immersing himself in it, covering every aspect, scholarly, personal, poetic. And his whole thesis is that these caves are humanity wrestling with their increasing fall away from the animal world, from the world of, of being an animal. And he couches it in this really fascinating way, which I th I've subsequently learned, I think, is a kind of Hegelian way of looking at things. The idea is that the state that you fall away from is created by the fall. Right. And Eshelman's idea is that there was no Paleolithic Eden in the sense that civilization has, in many senses, envisioned. This is an image created by our fall away from it. And there's a weird kind of Mobius loop in that that I really like. And for the very same reason that I love it, I find it really hard to verbalize or go beyond just the kind of plain, bafflingly paradoxical expression of it. But, you know, I, I mean, I think there's something in what Phil was talking about right back there, right um, in the earliest human, what we would call culture, you know. I mean, obviously the painted caves aren't the earliest human culture, but this would have been a question of, degrees, not like one event. We would conceptualize it after the fact in mythologies like the Bible as a single event, a fall. But Eshelman talks about it as a, I think his phrase is a, a multiphasic expulsion. So there's these kind of, there's this series of transitions and each one we're kind of grappling with the same thing, which is our fall away from animality. And Pan is, to be clearly, a kind of uh, emblem of quite a late effort to retain some connection to something we feel is uh, not just valuable, but essential about our being. That, I love that. Yeah, it's and awesome. We can think of that structure of this kind of like retrocausal creation of the past, right? In terms of Pan's history itself, like Pan's biography, right? What happened to Pan? I've always been struck by the parallels which Hillman sort of hints at between Pan and Christ, right? Two events, both historical events that mirror one another is the, well, actually you could, this could crystallize with another event as well. The runner who encounters Pan on his way back to Athens experiences something that's very much like what Constantine will later experience before the, uh, you know, in v uh, what's the, what's the Latin in, in, in signo vinces, is that it? In this sign thou shalt conquer. This very similar experience, the God reveals himself, calls on the person to honor them, to make a shrine for them, and then they win the battle. Another event, of course, is the famous death of Pan, uh, reported by Plutarch, the famous story of the sailor who reports that, you know, on a sea voyage, they heard a voice saying that Pan is dead. And this happened, this moment, this anecdote, this event coincides more or less with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which consummates the, the, the kind of prophetic aspect of Jesus's mission, right? So strangely, the idea is that Christ replaces Pan, 
you know, and Christ famously said stuff like, I've come to replace the ruler of this world. And the ruler of this world, the implication is that that's Satan, right? Will don the garb of Pan, will look like Pan from then on. Mm -hmm. So of all the, all the ancient gods, it is Pan who is selected as the representative of the world that Christianity replaces. And that's very interesting. And also, you know, Plutarch says that because Pan is dead, the oracles are silent. That's kind of the implication because it's on the silence of the oracles is the text where he reports this event. And so that, that Pan had a kind of, was a connective God that allowed humans to gave humans the capacity to communicate with all the gods. Now, I'm, I'm extrapolating, but the idea is that Pan would be somehow the bridge between the human and the pantheistic gods of the old world. That's really interesting because that taps into another thing that's come up in recent research that was just a kind of inkling. And I thought it was just me because I was really into tricksters and I had all this Pan stuff happening. And I was kind of relating pan to tricksters but i was like no nah, i'm just I, I felt like i was being you know woolly with my mythology and you know kind of quite happy with that in myself but not prepared to commit to like a theory or a, an idea about this it turns out like what i thought was woolly is kind of like right on the mark uh, i start to find out okay so pan's father is a bit of a mystery, but often ascribed as being Hermes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. you know, son of Hermes the trickster. But then I got to Philippe Borgio's book, The Cult of Pan in Ancient Greece, and there's a really short sentence. And I'm not sure, to, not to my satisfaction, he doesn't really kind of back it up, but just the sentence in itself is astonishing. He says, in many respects, Pan is Hermes, only more so and more exactly so. Hmm. And to unpack that a bit, I think that this is relating them both as being old Indo-European gods associated with pastoralism, which is, of course, the kind of like the Indo-European way. And I think, you know, Pan and Hermes are both kind of associated with Arcadia and the rural scene in Arcadia. I think Hermes, there's that association with Herms, the piles of stones that people would making which i th think are kind of like a boundary marker so it's all about it's this is the trickster territory of the kind of boundaries between territories and towns or whatever but then there's a kind of lengthier kind of more interesting connection between them and I, i'm kind of unpacking all this because i thought it was interesting i'd not conceived of pan in the way that jf had as in some sense being this connective tissue as between humans and the world of the gods, which is obviously this is the primary role of the trickster in many, many cultures, is the the figure that you give offerings to in order to get your offerings to any other god. He's the messenger, you know. There's this other thing that Borgia goes into about connection between Pan and Hermes as a trickster. Some of the variations of the story of Pan's connection to the Battle of Marathon talk about this. Maybe one of the ways that Pan chipped in and helped the Athenians win was by causing panic in the enemy camp. So it's kind of like a, a trick, you know, Borgia is saying, okay, you know, he plays tricks. But then he says, however, the involvement of Pan with panic goes beyond the fact that he invented it as a trick, invented panic as a trick. There are closer connections. A panic is not just any kind of trick. 
it is a sudden and unpredictable condition. This unpredictability of Pan's action in panic reflects a characteristic of his father Hermes. F. Cosola links this suddenness, this unpredictability of Hermes' arrival, with the word Hermion, which means good luck. Hermes is the god of the windfall, or the stroke of luck. Similarly, Pan, the son of Hermes, a god we hear but do not see, manifests in the Panaeon, a temple of Pan, his ineluctable and disturbing presence. Panic may also be understood as an attribute proper of the hermetic nature of Pan, a specialization of traits already present in his father Hermes. With Hermes, suddenness takes the form of a godsend or windfall. Hermes is a guide who puts us on the right road to abundance, profit or the fertility of flocks, or simply homeward when we are lost. As an ally or provider, Hermes is unexpected. In panic, suddenness shows another face. It takes the form of surprise, a collision with an unfamiliar that remains unfamiliar, a sphere of pure conjecture. Pan seen in this way as something latent in Hermes or his dark side. And yet, like Hermes, Pan comes to help us. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. And, and that jives with what Hillman is saying, I think, in Pan in the Nightmare. You could conceptualize Pan as the kind of dark side of Hermes, the side that has to do with instinct. So you could connect, for example, Pan with the type of communication, often very sophisticated communication you'll find in the animal realm, the kind of play of signs that are used in marking out territories and mating rituals and that sort of thing. Uh, a very sophisticated, what do they call, fixed action pattern that you'll find in nature that looks a lot like civilization, but is entirely unconscious in the human sense. It's not reflexive. And it's still Hermes, but it's Hermes outside the kind of like rational light of Apollo. It's Hermes as he appears in nature before that coming to consciousness. And so there's a kind of dyad of Pan and Hermes that I really, really dig. It's really cool. Yeah, you know, one thing that I would throw in thinking about the contrast between Pan and Hermes is that idea of suddenness, of surprise. I would also think of it in terms of like the degree to which you can control a situation. Spontaneity implies, at least in this context, something emerging spontaneously into your life not because of anything you did. Now, I'm just talking off the top of my head and possibly through my hat, but it seems to me like, you know, when people say that they are hermeticists, they're involved in hermetic practice, it's all about technique. It's stuff that you do. It's, uh, I mean, to put it in maybe trivializing terms, it's tricks, wetware hacks, things you do with your mind and the thing is that Pan does play tricks on us, but it's not a trick that we can master. Like I think about the times that I've been in a panic, not being lost in the woods because every time I go in the woods, I take very great pains to make sure I don't get lost. But the only times I've had panic attacks have been in my sleep. They've been in dreams and they're brutal and they are absolutely definitionally things that I neither want nor could foresee I couldn't plan it. There was nothing I could do to avoid it. And if some madness took me and I actually wanted to induce such a panic attack, nothing I could do to make it happen. It is the imposition of a level of nature beyond the level of hacks and tricks and technique. 
I love that. Can I just, I'll just throw an anecdote in because you were, you just described something that really resonated with me. When I was young, this is strange because it, it, it speaks exactly to this kind of dichotomy where technique fails and panic, the kind of the obverse comes to the fore. So when I was uh, about 13 years old, I was at, my father has a cottage by a lake in, in Quebec and there's a mountain right by the cottage and it's there's a road that goes like kind of halfway up the mountain and then it's just bush so uh, my brother and i decided to climb the mountain so we bushwhacked our way to the top of this mountain where we could see the lake in its entirety it's beautiful view it was like the early fall i remember and then my brother for some reason wanted to go back home and i decided to stay and meditate I was like, I'm going to meditate on this mountaintop and achieve some kind of, you know, I don't know, enlightenment <laughs> or whatever at 13. Maybe I was 14. So I sat under a tree and meditated for I, I don't know how long um, and I don't know how well. But when I got up, I suddenly realized that I was lost. And this is very strange because I didn't move. I, I just sat under a tree of the, and I couldn't recognize what I was seeing, the lake that I was seeing had this strange island that I know is not on my, the, the lake that our cottage is on. I didn't recognize the landscape at all. And then I, I had a panic attack. And what happens in a panic, you touch on this in North. This is the only mention of pan in North, but it's very important. It's on a beautiful, uh, very important uh, page. This is on page 260 of your book, North, Gyrus. <laughs> This propensity for panic attacks was eventually unraveled by intensive breath work. So you're talking here about your own period of panic disorder. I also experienced something like that. Techniques which use the whole range of breathing from fast to slow, deep to shallow, can summon powerful currents of energy out of the body, challenging old blockages, but also allowing one to step back at will from overwhelming sensations. These techniques allowed me to dip into a vortex of hyperventilation and fear and in more controlled circumstances and to gradually acclimatize. Over time, these episodes began opening out into ecstasies of contact and presence, panic dissolving and my heart flooding with a warmth that brought me closer to friends and expanded my intimacy with, with immediate experience. And then you write, William Burroughs once characterized Pan, the Greek god of panic, as, quote, the sudden awareness that everything is alive and significant, entwined with the fear and paranoia, the depths of animate relatedness. So animate relatedness is precisely what I experienced in that panic. Everything suddenly was alive, alive with, with mm. a kind of weird alien semiosis that I couldn't interpret. The world was speaking a foreign language, showing me um, it was showing itself to me in some form that I hadn't seen it before. I didn't know where I was, but it seemed, it felt, and this is something that anyone who suffered a panic attack will know, that it was the environment conspiring against me. That there was an intention in the world out there to uh, make sure that I stayed lost. Mm. Eventually, I found my way, and that was one of the, the the most joyous, blissful moments of my life was recognizing this one house halfway down the mountain and then finding the way back. Uh, but I, it's strange because it's the reverse of what you just described. You're talking about living with panic and technique guiding you out, and I seem to be, I guess, intimating a causal relation between the use of technique and that leading me into panic. And again, that's that weird kind of dyad of Hermes who would represent technique and then uh, Pan who represents the instincts that form the kind of raw material for technique. But there's always a dangerous game there when one can slip into the other. 
right? Does that make any sense? Yeah. I mean, this is fascinating. It's like a, there's this kind of like ambivalent dual relationship within this sphere of ambivalent dual relationships between Pan and Hermes and technique and instinct, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah, and reason and passion, you know, you could frame it different ways. I'm reading Hume right now, and he's all about reason and passions in a very interesting way. Mm -hmm. And he reinvents those things in a very interesting way. So, yeah, just I guess we're just talking about the most fundamental dichotomies, binaries, dualities. And so we can make all kinds of connections. But I just thought that spoke to what Phil was saying and also to what you were saying about the kind of dyadic nature of Hermes and Pan. Yeah, I keep thinking as we're talking about panic, and you mentioned that for Hillman, Pan is this fundamental dyad of fear and desire and in kind of extremis, in very extreme form, the, the fear in the form of a blind panic, desire in a kind of a brutal form of rape, yeah. which Hillman talks about. And here you're referring to Pan's... Um his habit of chasing nymphs and, and, and exactly yeah i was kind of i wanted to bring that up because it's something that hillman foregrounds uh and i think it's part of his wider idea that when we look at polytheism and especially greek polytheism no god appears alone any significance of any god is related to the significance of another god and we need to bring those in and in this instance obviously we, we've been relating pan and hermes in an interesting way, but the Pan and the nymphs, uh, specifically Echo, who I think it's, it seems to be the most significant story of a nymph's relationship to Pan. Maybe that one and Syrinx as well. Yeah. But in a different sense, yeah. yeah. Um, because I, I just think that the Syrinx dyad, that speaks more to the Hermes and Pan thing in a way, because it's about how nature gets turned into culture. Of course, but yeah, whatever. yeah. Yeah, but let's yeah. talk about Echo. I, I want to hear what you have to say about Echo. Well, Echo, um, I, so for listeners, the basic story is Echo is kind of, she used to be very garrulous and she's kind of distracting Hera from... Like Zeus is kind of like having his way with the nymphs, having a good time. And Echo's job is to distract Hera while while Zeus is uh, doing his thing. Hera finds out what Echo was doing. So she kind of curses her with only being able to repeat people's words back to them. And I'm not sure if it's directly connected to the Pan story, but the Pan story is about Pan becoming frustrated that Echo won't reciprocate. So he drives his herders, he, he has his gang of herders, he drives them insane and they tear Echo apart and they fling her parts all over the world. And Gaia, the earth goddess, takes these parts and hides them in folds of herself. Hillman talks of this, of the idea that the parts of Echo are still kind of singing. And this is kind of like a, in one sense, it's like this, you know, just an explanation of a natural phenomena of echoes. So you go into this valley and there's a certain echo and it's like, ah, that's where there's a part of the echo has been buried. But I love the way Hillman interprets this. And he kind of, I think his interpretation, he almost makes this into a kind of origin myth of synchronicity. So the hermetic aspect of Pan comes through in Echo's hidden parts, which are so experiences of synchronicity become kind of moments where the world echoes, sings reflections of other times and other places back to us. So relating this also to spontaneity, for the Greeks, anything that had no cause was ascribed to Pan. 
So for Hillman, synchronicity becomes a spontaneous form of the creation of meaning, I guess. You know, it's a hermetic, hermeneutic thing, but it's not part of the kind of chain of cause and effect of meaning. And I guess this is entirely Jung's point of calling synchronicity an a-causal connecting principle. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we often talk about Pan in terms of his brutality. Pan is brutal. And interestingly, the term brutal, its other connotation, for example, in, in metaphysics, is a causality. There's this thing called brute facts in modern analytic philosophy, which refers oh, wow. to, okay. to uh, facts that have no reason, that, yeah. that cannot be explained. Wow. And they're called brute facts. Yeah. And then you have brutalism, brutalist architecture, uh -huh. is architecture that looks like it appeared ready-made. Mm -hmm. um, this idea of things happening without cause. And uh, the brutality of that, because it's an affront to reason, it's the, what resists explanation absolutely. And Pan might be kind of a, a signifier of that aspect of reality, which in a rationalist culture like ours, we would rather pretend didn't exist at all, right? Because it's scary. Yeah. But it's also salvific and, and yeah. promising because it's the world being able to generate anything whatsoever. It's infinite potentiality or infinite possibility. Yeah. Uh, completely, yeah. Like a... It's really interesting, those associations around spontaneity, that the civilized tendency is to veer towards the same with kind of irrationality. It's kind of, it tends to envision aggressive, negative, nasty things when, you know, spontaneous moments of intimacy, just the most uh, astonishing things. And these were equally spontaneous. So why would we necessarily associate spontaneity with panic, with, with sudden horror. I mean, this is, for me, part of my association of pan, panics and panic attacks is the kind of long process I've been through of kind of uncovering traumas that have inspired or kind of fed into that propensity to panic attacks. And there's a really interesting guy who's one of the main theorists of trauma, or practitioners of therapy of trauma, called Peter Levine. I think his main book is called Waking the Tiger. And it's, it's a little bit of a misnomer, Waking the Tiger, because what is kind of basic zoology is kind of observation of what animals, what prey animals do when they're attacked. And everyone knows about the fight or flight response or instinct but there's a third reaction which is to freeze and you know so you if you get like a big cat attacks like an antelope or something there's a mechanism in the brain and body freezes the animal i think a, one advantage is that if it does just kill you and eat you then uh, you're shut down and you don't suffer as much, you know, your sensory apparatus is kind of locked, you're immobile, you're not fully aware of being eaten alive, which is a bonus. But another, I think the reason why it's seeing as having evolved into an instinct is that sometimes the animal who's attacked might just kind of, okay, it's motionless, I can pause for a while, I'll kind of like, you know, just have a rest before I eat it. There could be moments when it's like dragged the prey off, put it somewhere for a bit, where there might be an opportunity to escape. So the animals that have done that and then actually escaped, be able to kind of like shake off this immobility and 
escape. That has kind of embedded it as an instinctual response. And Levine's theory is that what we experience as humans as PTSD is an incomplete freeze response. It's that we've had some trauma. We've had this freeze response reaction to it at some level. And we've not been able to fully go through that freeze response to the point where we shake it off and and then we're free again. And animals do that instinctually. And very often they're just fine after these horrible traumas. Uh, I, I've seen it. I've seen my cat bring me a mouse or bird uh, of course, yeah. that I thought was dead. And then, of course, the cat is proudly bringing this to me. Like, I'll hmm. receive it as a gift. And then I'll just, you know, scold the cat as I do. Not that, you know, what am I scolding? It's a cat. <laughs> uh, and then I'll, I'll remove the bird. And the minute I remove it, it just flies off. Or if it's a mouse, it just runs off and it's perfectly fine. Yeah. And you feel like, had it just given up? Was it experiencing a kind of ecstasy of the consumed and it just like was giving <laughs> itself away? Well, no, because it ran away as soon as it could. So I liked that. I never even heard of that. Of course, I, I knew about freezing, but I never heard it as part of a, a set of options that might include also like fight or flight. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's been really interesting for me discovering this. At this point, I kind of see, to me, that's obvious that it's, there's a relationship there with Pan because Pan is instinct. It's just that mm -hmm. there's instincts that are, that are much more kind of, they're off the grid of what civilization thinks when it thinks about instinct. And again, which kind of, we tend to think of these kind of, whether it's like aggression or sex, there's more sophisticated instincts at work in the animal world, which our civilization's inability to trust and complete those instincts when they kick in leaves us with very complex problems like PTSD. Oh. Huh. This was one of the things where I, I was kind of pushed in this direction well before I had it confirmed by dreams because some of my early kind of encounters in the dark country wilderness uh, with goats or a, a goat or an image of a goat at least, that experience was followed by dreams I had where the goat that I thought I'd experienced and seen in real life was there in the dream. I picked it up and ran around showing it to people saying, look, I really did <laughs> uh, experience this. This is the goat that I saw in the night. But it was immobile. It was limp. And it was like all through the dream, I was kind of placing it on the altars in this kind of limp state. And there were like witches who were taking this limp goat and kind of placing crystals on it. And it was this big kind of healing ritual. And yeah, I, I mean, looking back now, it's like, it's astonishing how precise this kind of dream signposting towards an aspect of Pan that has just become a, a very important for me, but also uh, I'm just amazed how well attested it's become in the research that I've done after spontaneous images and signs pointing in that direction. I was going to say, all of this is possibly a reason to pursue the martial arts. I say this as somebody who watches a lot of combat sports and also at least sometimes participates in them, you know, a mediocre uh, amateur boxer. Sub-mediocre, actually. <laughs> but that's it's not the point. <laughs> because when you're doing 
a martial art, you are actually cultivating the circumstances in which you have to deal with your panic. The ropes of the boxing ring keep you in place. And especially like the first few times you spar, I remember the very first time I sparred, it just reminded me of the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. Don't know if you've ever seen that film where you see a bunch of guys sitting in a troop carrier waiting to land at Normandy and they're just waiting and they're just waiting. And then the side goes down and the bullets start coming in and you see guys being killed left and right. And it's a melee and suddenly it's just a frenzy. It's a fury. It's just coming at you and you have to deal with it. And, you know, you think about it in that moment. You can fight, you can flee, or you can freeze. That's basically the three things you can possibly do. You can move forward, you can move backwards, or you can stay still. And yet in contact sparring, where you're having a fight, but it's a controlled fight, there's a lot of things that are kind of sublimating the full violence of the encounter. You know, you've got a coach who's making sure that everybody is working within certain boundaries, telling you like, throw it 40%, like, okay, jabs and crosses only or whatever. So it's controlled. And in that situation, nevertheless, you are going to feel panic, but you've got to figure out a way to find a direction that isn't forward, backward, or freeze. <laughs> you know, that's, it's, yeah. it's, um, wow. yeah. How do you step inside the time of the panic and work with that? Yeah, exactly. And that's like a physical dynamic variant of what I spoke about in terms of breath work, of finding techniques that enable you to go into that place and find different ways of relating to it. And it's a knife edge that you run on going in there. And I, I did martial arts for about, I think it was about five years or so. I did Penchak Silat, the Indonesian martial art. And it was at SOAS, the School of Oriental and African Studies in uh, London. So it was like, a, there was a turnover each year of relatively new students. But then there were the stalwarts who were there for a long time. And there wasn't much in between. So after a few years, I was a kind of like, intermediate and there were beginners and advanced people and I was kind of too advanced for the beginners so I got thrown in with the advanced guys and sparring with <laughs> with those guys yeah the first you know few weeks of doing that I kind of was joking to myself that I'm learning how to get beaten up yep <laughs> um which is only half a joke because it is precisely about repeatedly being subjected to that situation where your instincts kick in and freak out and you condition yourself to be able to, it's not even to be able to think in that situation. It's you're conditioning yourself to be able to go into that instinctual space and tap into protective, more sophisticated instincts than, oh, oh my God. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're playing, the instinct is your medium. It's not something that you overcome but something that you learn to work with. Exactly. That's yeah. a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. And instinct is, like you were saying, it, it's much more subtle and variegated and and creative than we tend to make it out to be. Absolutely. In our rationalist society, instinct yeah. they, is- They don't call it martial arts for nothing. That's right. the art at the heart of the martial. Yeah, exactly. So again, we have this negotiation of technique and instinct, which yeah. I find really, really interesting. Yeah. 
to get back a little bit to the contrast between technique and instinct or Hermes and Pan, a word that came up, Jairus, some 15 or 20 minutes ago when you mentioned the word hermeneutics, another word to grow out of the name of Hermes, who among his many other attributes is a god of interpretation. A hermeneutics is the art of interpretation. And I was very interested in what you said, JF, about brute facts and the etymology of brute, that which is uncaused or has no explanation, just is. That which just is, is kryptonite to hermeneutics. If you're if like, I'm a college teacher, and if you are teaching a student and you are asking them to interpret a piece of art, like I'm a, I teach in a music school, so I'm having people like, look at this piece of music by, I don't know, Richard Wagner or something, and make something of it. Why do you suppose there's this really odd thing that happens here? We're always asking, like, what do you make of that? What do you make of, you know, this odd thing, or, you know, what JF might call a rift? And the thing that grinds the conversation to a halt is when a student says, I don't know, probably just random. Hmm. That's a very millennial word. That's a word that I noticed people younger than myself using a lot more than people of my own generation. And random doesn't just mean random in the American vernacular. It doesn't just mean random in some mathematical sense. It means something like brute, like a brute fact mm -hmm. that, you know, what we might want to interpret is you just say, that's just random, then that will end the conversation. Or as a teacher, I would be like, okay, yeah, but what if there was some something there, some inning? Like, yeah. you know, hermeneutics in a sense is always the invitation to move beyond that brute condition. Oh, that's interesting. It's funny because hermeneutics began as in biblical scholarship, right? If I'm not mistaken. And it's strange because when hermeneutics goes from... How Hermes got back into Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Well, all the gods are in Christianity. Um, but like the way that hermeneutics, uh, the way it changes when it's transposed into a secular register is very interesting because there is a place for the brutal in biblical hermeneutics because the scripture is unchanging. It's uncaused in the sense that it's caused by the first cause. It just is what it is. And no interpretation will ever, the understanding is that no biblical interpretation will ever get to the bottom of the scriptural brute fact. But that's not quite true because in Protestantism, which I think is where hermeneutics was born, that is not necessarily, I think you're you're more right there because I think that there the, the idea in the Protestant tradition was always that there was something to uncover through the application of reason and all these interpretive tools that would give us some non-contingent truth behind scripture in a way. But then I'm not actually, I'm just talking out of my ass right now because then you have sola scriptura, which is again, is a, is a kind of brutalism of scripture. I'm just saying this, there's a very uncomfortable relationship between the brutal, that which just is, and that which can be interpreted in the very idea of hermeneutics, which is what occasions the idea of the hermeneutic circle which comes back again and again and again and never gets to the bottom. That's part of the idea of hermeneutics is that there's no getting to the bottom. Yeah. I assume it's been implicit in what you've both been saying that both of these things, that interpretation and chance, are governed by Hermes. Right. Both of them. So, right. <laughs> so that they're, they're bound together. And uh, you were going off into this 
idea about the hermeneutic circle and uh, on that I think you maybe talked about this the idea of there being two senses of meaning and I've always thought of meaning in the common sense as pointing it's like pointing at something else what does this mean you're asking what does this point at and then maybe you've got an infinite regress okay what does that point at what does that point at and you've got the the infinite regress or circle or whatever of like the dictionary where every word is defined by the words but there's a sense of meaning which you come across in kind of mystical literature i guess where meaning is not pointing to anything else is the thing itself is its own meaning and i don't know if you yeah there's there's yeah. are you is this tapping into the i'm sure you've maybe mentioned this in a, a oh yeah we yeah we, oh yeah we, we talk about that in terms of signification versus significance okay yeah yeah right like something is significating if it's pointing at something else and it subordinates itself to its referent so basically a sign that's pointing to something somehow occupies a secondary position ontologically to the thing it's pointing at it means that it is there for that whereas significance is precisely the opposite it's when something reveals itself in itself not signifying anything mm, and therefore yeah is meaning in itself. It doesn't need to be explained. Yeah. So again, it's this idea of the brutal. Um, Ooh, you know, and this brings us back to Pan, because what is Pan's emblem? It's a pipe. He's a musician. Mm -hmm. And it's in music especially that the significant signification duality becomes very pronounced. I was just using as a hypothetical example something in Wagner's music, Richard Wagner. And... You know, Wagner famously is all about trying to marry significance and signification. I'm boiling down a rather complicated aesthetic move that Wagner is making that has to do with his quasi-Hegelian idea of a dialectical Aufhebung where Shakespeare and Beethoven would be antitheses leading to the, <laughs> the, the end point of human development that is Richard Wagner. Guy had an ego. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting because in Wagner's music, but anybody's music, really, there are the things that you can say about it, which if you have, for example, a grasp of the technical language of music, you're able to talk about, you know, harmony, harmonic motion, phrase forms, generic deformations of phrase forms, how, for example, a pop song might be in dialogue with other pop songs and making expressive moves in relationship to them. Those are all things you can say about these things. These are This is all on the level of signification. But then there is in music always very pronounced the brute fact of music, its isness, its presence, the dimension of music that I have actually spent a lot of my career complaining that we as music scholars don't pay enough attention to. That that's actually something that people who just love music, ordinary music lovers, are very attuned to and often feel very suspicious of music professionals when they start talking in very technical terms about music because that seems to negate the significance aspect of music. It seems as if you are covering up significance with your signification. But it's interesting that in Pan... You know, we're talking about dualism, but like there's also a certain balance, a fulcrum point in Pan. And I wonder if that's his music making, that that's something that pertains to both aspects of meaning. 
it also is interesting to me, think back, reflect back to the beginning of this conversation when you were talking about that book from the 70s, Juniper something. Uh, Juniper Fuse. It's actually, that's the that's Juniper the kind Fuse. Of, uh, early 90s, I think. Yeah, oh, yeah. 90s. Okay, very good. Which I totally want to read after your description of it. I didn't know about it before. Uh, Juniper Fuse. You're talking about the the human sense of the human fall from or progression away from animality. One of the most durable ideas pertaining to music goes back not just hundreds of years in the Western tradition, but you find it in other cultural traditions as well. The idea that the Ursprach, the basic origin of human speech is in music and that uh, our speech is a kind of degenerated, like our signification is a kind of degenerated form of something more unified, more perfect, a kind of union of perhaps both sides of meaning. And significant to me that the, I think I've got the dates right, that even slightly older than the oldest known cave paintings are the earliest known flutes. Yeah, full pentatonic yeah, scale. You know, yeah, exactly, with a full pentatonic scale. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm reminded now of uh, Elizabeth Baird Browning's famous poem on Pan, right? It's called A Musical Instrument, where she's like wondering what Pan is doing down there in the reeds. And of course, Pan is looking for Syrinx, who's been transformed into a reed to hide from him. And then Pan finds the reed that was once Syrinx and, and tears it up and with a knife, just a strange thing that, then, that Pan would wield a knife. But again, there's this weird thing. It's like it, that could be seen as a, a mistake on Browning's part, or it could be that she's telling us something about the instinctive roots of technology, that even that can be subsumed in Pan's realm. But anyways, takes out a knife, cuts the reed, and carves out a musical instrument, and then makes sweet music out of this brutal act. The continuity that unites the howl, the, the desperate howl of panic or rage that you hear in nature, and the musical performance, the way that those things don't exist in opposition to one another, but that they are the ends of a strange spectrum, that an overwrought division of instinct and reason, for instance, just blinds us to. There's something more continuous going on there. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, uh, very much with the idea that speech originates in singing or kind of a, you know, the original form of human speech would be a kind of like sing-song form of uh, communication. And Pan, I guess I've not gone into the, his specific uh, aspect of being related to music. I've been more generally maybe interested in him being associated with the acoustic sphere, the idea that he's heard and not seen. And it's a... A little thread of research, I've not gone far down, but I'm curious to to know what you might think of it, because I know you're both quite into Marshall McLuhan, because this aspect of Pan makes me think of McLuhan's idea of acoustic. What, what What's his oh, yeah. uh, word for it? Acoustic space as opposed to visual space? Yep. An acoustic space as the kind of primitive, archaic mode of being. Um, that nevertheless somehow comes back in the modern, is retrieved, to use a McLuhanite word. Yeah. 
I'm just uh, thinking about the Pan's return and uh, you're talking about North America. Did Pan, yeah. you said, did Pan yeah. go to North America or is it just a European thing? Um, I've not read... I've s- often, sorry to interrupt, but I've often had that thought too, Phil. It's like I, I once <laughs> wrote a, bo- a novel that never got, blessedly never got published about the Pan idea. It was Pan was my thing. And mm-hmm. I was like, it doesn't fit. I can't fit this into North American context. But anyway, sorry, proceed, Jairus. Sorry to interrupt. Well, I, I mean, I don't have an answer to it. I just, there's two... Th- two works that I've not got to yet. One is D.H. Lawrence, who I think wrote called something Pan called in Pan in America. Was his idea that mm. uh, Pan in mm. America was the indigenous Americans. Mm-hmm. But there's also, there's a book which maybe was mentioned in Hellier, I think. The uh, Rebirth of Pan, Jim Brandon. The Rebirth of Pan, yeah. So, and this is, I gather, is a kind of like relating uh, Fortean phenomena in America, two pounds. Oh, Sasquatch. Yeah. Mothman. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I have it here. Um, I just learned that Jim Brandon, I don't know if that's his real name, but I've supposedly he was the president of the American Nazi Association. Oh. <laughs> so he's a very problematic person. <laughs> I haven't seen any hint of that in the book so far. In fact, I find the book quite well written and entertaining. But yeah, what he's drawing a parallel with North American paranormal phenomena and folklore and he's connecting that to pan it's just like pan in a way and this has often been a lot of commentators on pan mention this is pan gets romanticized or um, neutered (laughs) aestheticized in the 19th century he loses his namelessness Uh, this is something that arthur Machen and the great god pan tries to restore the namelessness or formlessness of pan the ever shiftiness of pan the kind of a lovecraftian dimension of this entity that gets lost precisely because it's scary so you want to have pan you know playing the reeds peacefully chasing nymphs you know sitting by the the river but i guess brandon's idea um and i only read a a few chapters is that we find pan in north america in a context where um, he is restored to his namelessness, uh-huh. such that um, he takes the form. And again, it's the same associations as Hillman makes. Bestiality, brutality, mercurialness, trickster. Well, also links that you've made on this show. The association with the trickster and the association with synchronicity and inexplicable conjunctions of meaning, you know, in a way that we can't account for. So it's a very interesting book, Brandon's is. Yeah. So what's his attitude to the inexplicability? Because I've been thinking of, since we discussed the difference between significance and signification, that in all my kind of experiences and overlapping research, I mean, I'm like uh, a lot of people, I'm kind of, I love maybe a bit addicted to the spinning out of stories and interpretations. And it's great. And I'll almost certainly never lose that love. But at the same time, I'm always, I've always got an eye on the fact that I'm possibly missing significance through my pursuit of signification. And I feel like I'm leading the conversation to a point where like <laughs> where conversations stop because I it'd be entirely talking about the point where words fail no interpretation can be offered because you're missing the point but you know I think you do this repeatedly on the show repeatedly through words try to really draw attention to this point where words fail 
I think going back to music for me, through my experiences of synchronicities, I've, you know, obviously got fascinated in the trying to f- draw out the meanings of what, you know, like this thing happened that meant something because it connected this to this. And, but what does it mean that it connected these things together? And after a while, I kind of started taking this attitude instead of just taking the hermeneutic approach, taking a musical approach and appreciating the fact that what I was seeing wasn't necessarily um, the point of what I was experiencing wasn't necessarily the connections of meanings, but what I thought of as the rhyming or the harmonics between different parts of my life, different experiences I've had. And then some moment will happen where different motifs from my life will resonate in a new way and it's a musical thing so it's not the point of it isn't some kind of like discovery you're going to make by following the signpost that it's putting in front of you the point is that experience and really throwing yourself open to it if you enjoyed this podcast consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and, of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>